Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. In each episode, I cover an individual bird species, tell you all about it. Um, I usually try to record outside. Right now, I'm in First Landing State Park. You probably just heard that uh, there's a crow right above me. Um, Hopefully, some other birds um, come around, too. And um, while I am recording in the woods right now, First Landing, you know, sits right on the Lynnhaven River. And this is a place that in the wintertime, you can find the subject of today's episode, the common loon. So this episode was suggested by Henson. Uh, thank you so much, Henson. Uh, Henson's a good friend of the show. Uh, he also suggested my puffin episode. Uh, I guess you got something for diving birds, Henson. <laughs> um, common loons are a, a really cool bird. I'm, I'm excited to do this episode. They're one of the most studied birds in America. So there was a lot of research out there for me to come through. You know, I won't get to everything about this bird in this episode, but I will hit on the highlights, you know, their life history, their breeding, their feeding, some really cool um, physical adaptations that they have. And of course, I'll talk about their evolutionary history too. The cover art for this episode was done by Jessica Coker. Check out all her drawings. She's uh, supplied a lot of the cover art for um, for Dirty Bird episodes, and they're always amazing. Um, you can find her on Instagram. So first, let's start off with the name Loon, that common name Loon. Um, You know, I always thought that it was referring to, you know, loony, like referring to their call, kind of making them sound like they're crazy or deranged. Um, This is probably the fact of the show, though. It's not at all related to, you know, the word loony for crazy. Um, And this seems to be like a a really common misconception. Um, Sometimes even Loon's calls are referred to as loony tunes. But um, the, the word loony, it's, you know, a pejorative term that comes from the word lunatic. Um, lunatic itself comes from the Latin word luna, referring to the moon, uh, due to an old belief that changes in the moon can cause intermittent insanity. But the common name loon, you know, referring to the bird, um, it actually has Scandinavian or Old English roots. The Scandinavian word lomer, um, it means awkward or clumsy, and the Old English word loam um, has that same meaning. While loons are extremely graceful in the water, they are very awkward on land due to their posterior position of their legs. Um, I'll talk about this a, a little bit more in the show, but if you ever see them, the, the few times they do go on land you know, to, to breed um, or mate, um, they are, are very, very awkward. They can barely even walk. There's a couple European species of loons. Um, over in Europe, they refer to loons as divers, so that's their common name there. Our common loon, its uh, scientific name is Gavia immer. Uh, Gavia, so that's the genus. Uh, that actually, that genus contains all the loons. Um, it's Latin for seabird, and uh, this word dates back to Pliny the Elder's um, work, Natural History. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I read this section where he refers to Gavia, um, and it seems he's actually referring to gulls when he uses Gavia. But um, in taxonomy, Gavia refers to the, uh, the loon species, specifically the five loon species that are in this genus. Um, immer is Latin for immersed or submerged immer, immersed, um, and that just, you know, refers to the diving and swimming habits of this bird. 
Common loons are pretty unmistakable um, unless you're seeing them from a distance. Um, they're, they're a very big bird, a big and, and long bird. Um, they are smaller than a Canada goose, but larger than a raven. Uh, they sit pretty low in the water, you know, compared to ducks, which, you know, are, are floating right on the surface. The, the loons are kind of sunken down, uh, kind of similar to how when you see a, a cormorant in the water. Uh, their tail is really short. Um, you can't even really identify it when they're, when they're in the water. The back of their body sort of like is submerged underwater. Their head is round. Um, their bill is long and sharp, uh, dagger-like. Their neck is fairly long and has an S-shape. And their breeding plumage is just, you know, absolutely stunning. Uh, a handsome all-black head, including the bill. They have white and black vertical lines on the neck. They have this black neck collar, kind of like, you know, like a priest's collar. Their body is black with white spots dotting on it. Uh, looks a bit like a checkerboard pattern. And then their eye is this awesome dark red. In the non-breeding season, though, that eye goes from red to kind of a gray-black. Uh, their bodies also follow suit. Their black feathers become gray, and the white on their neck becomes much more pronounced. Uh, both males and females have identical plumage, uh, so you can't use that to tell them apart. The males are about 25% heavier, so they, you know, they're a little bit bigger. Um, it's really difficult to tell the difference on them, though, unless uh, they're you know, side by side. And um, even, you know, in the field, um, usually they have to be captured and sexed for, uh, you know, researchers to accurately determine males and females. The common loon does overlap with some other loon species that could be, uh, you know, mixed up with it. Um, especially the non-breeding plumage uh, can make it a little difficult to tell it apart from, uh, you know, some of its cousins. The Pacific loon, it has a gray head during the breeding season, which makes it easily recognizable. Um, but during the non-breeding season, the Pacific loon looks a lot like the common loon, uh, but you can use the bill to tell them apart. The Pacific loon has a long, thin bill, uh, sort of like a stiletto knife, um, whereas, you know, our common loon, it, it has a dagger-like bill, but it's, it's, you know, chunkier. The yellow-billed loon, um, true to its name, uh, you know, it is a yellow bill, so that's the, the giveaway uh, between it and the common loon. And then the, uh, the red-throated loon, um, in the breeding season, red-throated loon, it has that red throat. It's, it's uh, unmistakable. But in the non-breeding season, it does look a lot like a common loon. Um, you look at the face, it has more white on its face than the common loon does. Um, and then also apparently red-throated loons have this habit of pointing their bill up in the air. Um, it makes me think of like, you know, like Pinky Out from Spongebob. They're sort of like a pompous rich person with their bill pointing up in the air like, mm, I'm too good for this, uh, this waterway. Um, so uh, that can help you uh, tell them apart from the common loon. So let's start off with the vocalizations of this bird. Um, you know, they're so cool and, and pretty much everyone, even if they don't know, a common loon's call like they have they'll be able to recognize it because it's used in Hollywood all the time in horror movies or just you know in movies in general to uh, connotate like uh, loneliness or isolation or foreboding So the, uh, there's actually a couple different um, categories of common loon vocalization. So the, the first one is the wail. That's that iconic loon sound. Um, sort of creepy. <laughs> the whale is used by common loons um, both to attract mates and then also to signal um, their location and their territory. And from what I could tell, this is done by both uh, uh, sexes. The yodel, though, this one is used exclusively by males. So you hear it's a pretty harsh shriek, and um, yeah, it, it, it means exactly what it sounds like. It means, stay away, this is my territory. So if you hear that, uh, the male is um, very agitated, possibly about to get in you know, a border skirmish, a fight over territory. They also have a hoot call. 
And this one is used to communicate with their mates or their young. And finally, there's a tremello. So this is more of a cackling sound, and you usually hear this when the loon is disturbed or feels threatened, you know, like disturbed, you know, near its nest or something, or, you know, something surprises it. Um, so uh, this is a sound that the loon is not happy at all. Breeding range of common loons is across northern North America. Um, it also stretches into Iceland and Greenland. There's some breeding uh, populations there. But really most of the, the breeding population of loons is um, Canada. Uh, New England is, is like the southern extreme of the common loon breeding range. And then they breed kind of a, across a, the northern part of America, the, the Great Lakes and, you know, the lakes of Minnesota are a, are a very big area in America for them to be able to breed um, also up into Alaska too. In the wintertime, so they migrate for the winter um, and they winter along the coasts of the eastern U.S., um, both the Atlantic and Pacific coasts. Um, also, an increasing amount have started to overwinter in freshwater lakes in the southern U.S., um, especially like reservoirs. So this is when I, I see common loons is, you know, the wintertime. Uh, they come down into the uh, Chesapeake Bay is a, is a big area where they like to, you know, spend the, the, the wintertime. And so, uh, you know, the Chisholm Creek where, uh, you know, I grew up, me and my wife grew up on and, uh, you know, Punchy Joe has his house and his dock. Um, I've been down there before. I'm staying on his houseboat. Um, and uh, waking up actually, you know, to the, the whale of the common loon um, out there on the water, it's, it's pretty cool. And, you know, waking up and peeking out the, the houseboat uh, a window and, and seeing some loons just gracefully, you know, going on the water, diving down, doing that whale. Um, it, it's, it's pretty awesome to, to see them, um, even though, you know, it's their, it's their non-breeding range, but it, it's just so cool that, uh, you know, they come down to, to spend the winter with us. So I mentioned that they're pretty awkward on land. They are great swimmers, though. I'll talk more about their swimming mechanics in a second. But um, let me talk about their flight here. Um, so uh, they can fly at a top speed of 75 miles per hour or 160 kilometers per hour. That's, that's, that's pretty damn fast. Um, they are really heavy birds, though. Um, they weigh about 10 pounds, which, you know, that, that's pretty heavy for, for a bird. Um, and then they have these short wings relative to that, uh, that big body size that they have. So this means that they have a high wing load. Um, I've talked about wing load and wing aspect ratio <laughs> on the show a lot. Um, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, deep dive into it. Uh, check out like the Vulture episode, uh, Godwin episode to, to learn more about that stuff. But basically, you know, they have a high wing load. That means loons have to flap really hard and fast in order to stay airborne. Um, in fact, they have a lot of trouble taking off and they need a long runway to be able to take off. Um, this is part of one of the reasons why they will choose like large lakes to, you know, breed and land on and, and not small ponds. Um, so in takeoff, they will be seen flapping across the lake for hundreds of feet. Um, I, I read uh, that, uh, you know, the males especially will need like at least like 300 yards of, of runway to take off. Um, and then they use their feet while they're like, uh, going across the runway to like kind of kick and paddle across the surface. It, I mean, it really looks like a struggle when you see these, these guys take off in flight, like they're having trouble lifting off. It reminds me of like, you know, a big, you know, military plane, like a 747 or something, you know, like it needs a long runway and it, it's really struggling to get into the air. But uh, that high wing load, um, that's why they are really fast flyers because they have to flap so fast in order to stay airborne so like they have to achieve that speed in order to stay airborne they can't they can't go slow you know when you see vultures like circling real slow in the air that's because they have a, a, a low wing load so like they don't need to they don't need much speed in order to create lift like uh but common loons they need a lot of speed in order to generate enough lift to keep them into the air um, and they, uh, they do lose their, um, flight ability, um, during the winter time, um, when they do a total molt, 
Um, this is a pretty risky strategy for birds to do. Um, you, you know, each bird has a different strategy for its molting. Um, some will, you know, just shed uh, uh, kind of feathers, like, you know, one at a time so that they never lose the ability to fly. Um, loons will do a total molt, though, uh, usually in mid-February. Um, and when they do this, uh, they lose the ability to fly for three to four weeks. So that's a long time that they are, you know, entirely pretty much waterbound. <laughs> So let's talk about what they eat and how they catch it. So um, these are fish-eating birds um, almost entirely, but we will talk a little bit about some alternative food choices that they do. Um, and uh, they catch their food by diving for it. Um, they are very, very good divers. Um, you'll almost always see these birds on the water, like I said. They're awkward on land. They have to work really hard to fly. But, you know, water, that's their element. Um, so usually you'll see them kind of, you know, floating on the surface, you know, like a duck, and then they will dip below for several minutes at a time. Uh, the record I saw was one loon who was underwater for 10 whole minutes. Um, that's, that's a really long time. Uh, take that, David Blaine. <laughs> uh, their muscles are specially adapted to work without oxygen for long periods of time. Um, one hint of this is uh, the gene ACTC1 and MYH7. Um, in humans, these genes cause a condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or hokum. Um, it's a potentially deadly condition uh, where basically the heart muscle is, is too thick and it can cause sudden death. Um, you know, you'll see in the news like, uh, you know, like a 17-year-old basketball player athlete will, you know, suddenly collapse and go into cardiac arrest. Um, it's usually because of this hokum uh, mutation. So um, the exact role of these genes isn't, uh, you know, known in common loons, but the fact that they have them, you know, maybe they have extra thick or strong muscles that, that don't need as much oxygen. They have webbed feet um, positioned posteriorly on their body to help propel them through the water. The feet being positioned that far back provides them good leverage for paddling. Um, think about them almost, you know, like a, a boat propeller, you know, you put it on the, the motor on the back of the boat. Um, but, you know, like I said, it makes them really awkward on land. Um, they, they can't even really walk. Uh, they mostly, like, slide on their belly, sort of like you uh, see a penguin do. Um, one caveat I'll say to this, though, is when I read um, John James Audubon's account of uh, common loons, um, uh, he does, um, you know, give an account where his son shoots a common loon in the wing. Of course, John James Audubon out there shooting all the birds. Um, and uh, so he shot it in the wing, and so the common loon fell to the ground. Um, and, uh, and you know, he, he went to try to, you know, chase it to collect it for his, you know, specimen collection. Um, but, uh, you know, the loon wasn't having it. So um, the loon actually, according to John James Audubon, got up like almost like stood upright and then just shot off running um you know towards the lake and um even even with a human chasing it uh the the loon outran uh john james audubon's son so maybe they can you know <laughs> you know run um when they're in extreme danger but uh i didn't really see any other accounts of this and, and usually if you do see them on land they're they're going to be real awkward they're going to be kind of sliding on their bellies around um they, they like the water much better uh, when they do dive, um, they can dive up to depths of 70 meters. That's pretty deep. That's, you know, like 200 feet underwater. Uh, unfortunately, the reason we know that fact, though, is because fishermen have, you know, caught them in their nets um, that they have set to, to depths that low. Um, you know, and of course, you know, the loons drown in the nets. But, um, uh, you know, this, this is how we know, like, how deep puffins dive and, and a lot of other diving birds is, is when they get caught as bycatch, unfortunately. Um, I found a really cool study that observed common loons with underwater cameras. Uh, basically, they took common loons and placed them in an indoor pool and then observed them as they dove and swam. Uh, fish were released into the pond to encourage the, the loons to dive, and the loons made short work of these fish. Um, uh, every time that a fish was released, the, uh, the hungry loons would capture them in just one to two seconds. But um, using the, the underwater cameras that could, you know, capture them and slow down the footage and analyze it, um, loons use their feet underwater, not their wings. You know, their wings are, are, are held to their side. So they use their, their feet like paddles underwater to propel themselves through the water. Compared to other aquatic birds like grebes and cormorants, um, they paddle much faster, uh, possibly because their feet are proportionally smaller when compared to their bodies. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, cormorants and, and grebes, they have like 
pretty big, you know, feet for their body size. Uh, loons, their, their feet are a little on the smaller size uh, compared to their body size. So they don't kick their feet, you know, like, like we would with like a flutter kick or something like that um, with swimming. Um, they, they kick out to the sides, uh, sort of like, you know, the breaststroke. Um, but they also will rotate their ankle joint while doing um, this kicking motion. Um, and this possibly produces a propeller-like effect, you know, similar to how a boat's propeller, you know, spins around in a circle to, to you know, generate um, um, force through the water. Uh, that's sort of what they're doing with their, their feet on both sides. They're, they're sort of acting like boat propellers. And when they turn, they do a really cool maneuver. Um, they'll use the foot on the side of the turn like a rudder. Um, and then they'll paddle with the other foot and kind of stick it out to, uh, to help them turn. If uh, you've ever canoed or kayaked, you've probably, like, if you need to turn really fast to one side, you stick your paddle in on the side you want to turn, and, and the drag that you create helps turn your canoe or, or your kayak, you know, where you want it to go. Um, that's basically what the, the loons do. So if they, if they want to, they can turn real fast to chase these fish because they'll, they'll stick out their foot and, and cause some drag, which whips their body around. They do use their wings and tails underwater too, not to swim, but to help like direct their turns. Uh, you know, they'll use them like extra rudders. And uh, also they observed that um, when loons were uh, moving underwater, they would sometimes bob their heads, uh, you know, forwards and backwards, kind of similar to, you know, when you see like a pigeon walking. Um, this is done to keep their heads stationary relative to uh, their forward propelling body. Um, and it also helps them have more accurate vision to spot prey. So, you know, they're, they're visual hunters. They're, they're looking for the fish, and, and, and that's how they're catching them. So clear water is very important for their hunting. They need a visibility of three to four meters in order to effectively hunt. Increased erosion or pollution that allows for algae blooms um, severely disrupts water clarity, and it can be devastating for, for loon feeding. You can actually see them actively searching for their prey on the surface. Uh, they do a behavior called peering, where they will dip their face into the water to look for fish. And then when they spot a fish, they will dive down to chase it and catch it. Speaking of their eyes, uh, I read a thesis paper um, that analyzed common uh, loon genes and found these genome codes for visual acuity in low light. Um, in the eyes, uh, you know, our, our human eyes, there's cones and rods. Uh, bird eyes get a little bit more complicated. Um, I, I, I talk a lot about bird eyes in my Kingfisher episode, I think. Um, so, you know, cones do colors, rods do movement and night vision. Um, anyway, in uh, common loons, uh, the protein associated with the rod cell uh, of the eyes, it's called rhodopsin. Uh, rhodopsin is specialized for low light vision, um, such as when 70 meters underwater hunting for fish. Uh, interestingly, rhodopsin has a red-purple coloration to it, um, and in this thesis paper I read, they theorized that uh, the high levels of rhodopsin in loon retinas uh, may account for their red eyes. Um, but, uh, you know, their eyes do change color in the, you know, non-breeding season, so I, I, I don't know uh, if this is true or not. Um, but anyways, they, uh, they do have good um, visual acuity uh, to see in low light conditions too. So, you know, they're mainly fish eaters, mainly pescatarians, but they will eat invertebrates and vegetation also. Loons on large lakes tend to target the larger fish that are available there, but loons will still breed on lakes that are only small enough to support minnows or even on fishless lakes too. Um, these are less desirable territories, obviously. I mean, who wants to you know, eat little crustaceans when they can eat a big old fish. Um, but on fishless lakes, invertebrates are the main food source. Um, this can be big invertebrates such as crawdads or as small as amphipods, which are like tiny little freshwater fish. Uh, another big invertebrate food source for loons apparently is leeches. So loons are good. They're gobbling up all the leeches. Who wants a, you know, a leech latching onto them? You usually don't see them eating because they'll swallow their food underwater. Um, but if it's a particularly large prey item, they will bring it up to the surface to kind of manipulate it um, before they swallow it. Uh, I did find an account from British Columbia where a common loon was observed eating a Pacific giant octopus. It's unclear whether they caught the octopus themselves or they were just scavenging, but, um, you know, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> guess he felt like calamari that day. Uh, usually loons um, feed alone or, you know, in uh, with their mated pair. 
Um, but in the late summer and fall, as migration approaches, common looms will form into groups to forage all together. Um, they ha- and uh, they'll do this during the, the non-breeding season, too. They'll, they'll kind of be in, in, in some groups, uh, tolerating each other's presence a little more to, to feed. Um, and uh, sometimes they'll even form into bands to kind of group hunt um, and chase schools of small fish. Um, sort of similar to what you see in nature documentaries with like dolphins, you know, like chasing a, a bunch of sardines. Like um, common loons have been known to, you know, form up in, in groups and, and chase down small bait fish. Another big fact of the show is that uh, loons return to the same lakes year after year to breed. So, you know, if you're if you're up in Canada or, or Northern America and, you know, you, you live near a lake uh, or there's a lake you like to go to and in the summertime you see a pair of loons there, it's probably year after year it's the same ones that you're seeing. So, uh, you know, that that's pretty cool to, to be able to observe a, a bird year after year. Like I said, usually they like to be on large, deep lakes that, you know, one, has a runway big enough for them to, to fly, and two, support some uh, big fish like pike, white sucker, and perch. Um, they can be found breeding on smaller and shallower lakes, though. Uh, those shallower lakes have less successful breeding rates um, and are likely less desirable territories. Um, also, lakes with irregular borders that contain a lot of bays and islands, um, those make better breeding territory and can support larger number of loons. So nice, you know, circular lake, uh-uh, not good, but one with like a bunch of peninsulas, maybe an island or two, like th- those are perfect. Loons are monogamous uh, during a, a breeding season and do, um, you know, return to the same mate. Um, but they will take on new mates if their mate dies. Um, also, we'll talk in a second that, uh, you know, sometimes uh, uh, the mate gets uh, usurped, um, we'll say. Um, but they don't necessarily stay together their whole lives. Um, I, I found uh, one source that said the average pair bond was about five years. Um, so I don't know if just after five years they're like, all right, I'm done. Or like, you know, usually after five years, you know, one of the mates has either died or, you know, has gotten fought off and, and uh, you know, now they're paired up with a new one. They usually return to their breeding lakes in late April and June, um, depending on the latitude. You know, they need the lake to be ice free uh, when they show up. And um, when they arrive on the breeding grounds, the, uh, the males do arrive first, um, but the, uh, the hormones are really flowing and the common loons are super aggressive, uh, attacking any rival loons and then also any other water birds that uh, cross their path. And I mean, these are, these are intense fights, like they will fight to the death. Um, you'll know a loon is uh, aggravated and about to fight um, when it does several aggressive postures. So these include bill dipping, splash dives, uh, rushing across the water. So like that they're going, uh, going to, you know, fly, but, but they don't. They're kind of like uh, rushing across, making a show. Um, they also do something called a penguin dance, which does not sound aggressive, but I guess, you know, is a sign of aggression. <laughs> but I think it's a, it's a funny name. So the penguin dance um, involves them leaping vertically out of the water and then slapping their feet down on the surface to make a splash. It, it sort of sounds like something like an angry toddler would do. <laughs> other species are not safe from loon aggression. They're known to attack you know, other waterfowl that, you know, wander onto their lakes. Um, it's unknown whether they're mistaking them for, uh, you know, uh, loons or something, or they're just like so hyped up that they just want to attack any other bird that they see. Um, there's actually a really terrifying account I read where, um, uh, this, uh, these bird watchers were observing a, um, common loon male, um, on a lake. And then there was a female duck species. I've, I've actually lost my notes on this. So I can't remember the exact species, but anyway, this, uh, this poor female duck, you know, she kind of, you know, got the ire of this, uh, male common loon and she did try to move out of the way. She like swam kind of to the other side of the lake, but the, the, the male common loon, he dives underwater and in a totally um, I mean, this is like you know thalassophobia this is <laughs> nightmare fuel the male common loon erupts underwater underneath the female duck who's just you know minding her own business floating there um erupts bill first underneath her stabs her 
and you know she's like thrashing around he's got his like bill in her um and then he uh after about 30 seconds he just like pulls it out and floats away and he's just like watching her and she like you know probably in shock is like kind of like you know uh figuring out what's going on and then you know dies slumps in the water and dies and uh in the common loon he's like yeah yeah take that um but swims away and and these bird watchers wait until the female's body floats to shore and and then do like an autopsy and stuff they're they're obviously like not just bird watchers they're like scientists too but anyway they they do an autopsy and he had speared her right through her liver um so you know these loons are not messing around and that that dagger-like bill like it it is a weapon for sure and like I said, these these fights are are not for show. They're are, they're really serious, um, and they happen a lot too. The the loon, you know, a loon with breeding territory, it's usually fighting off two to three incursions daily. Uh, a lot of those incursions are done by loons that don't have territory and are trying to gain territory. Um, you know, also uh, sometimes they'll they'll run across their neighbors too, um, especially uh, in a lake that supports multiple um, breeding um, loon pairs. Um, both males and females will fight, um, but, uh, you know, the males tend to fight other males, the females tend to fight other females. Um, those loons without territory, um, they are, you know, not only trying to, you know, gain territory, but they're also scouting out, uh, uh, territory. So when they make these incursions, they're not necessarily looking for a fight. They may just be scouting the place out to, to see how it is. Um, I'll, I'll talk about this more a bit later, um, but... If a territory is judged to be good, you know, when one of those uh, uh, floater uh, loons comes around, um, then they're likely to be more aggressive. This uh, is especially true if they have seen uh, young uh, successfully bred on that lake before. Um, then they know it's, you know, good territory. You can support young. So then they're really aggressive when they show up. And actually, if a loon couple has successfully raised young on a lake before, um, then they're more likely to get evicted in the following year. Um, I mean, this is because other loons have, you know, seen that it's good breeding territory. And so they're very aggressive when they, when they show up and, and fight in the following year. So it's really hard to, to hold on to your territory if it's good territory that you've, you know, been a good parent and, and raised young on. Uh, like I said, males arrive on the uh, uh, breeding territory first. Um, they also select the nesting site. And uh, loons will, you know, just like they use the same lakes year after year, they will use the same nesting site year after year also if they can. Their nests are located close to lake shore so that they can easily escape to the water if a predator approaches. Um, you know, remember they can't walk, um, so they just sort of like slide on the ground. Um, and so they're really vulnerable on land and really vulnerable when they're on their nest. So they'll, they'll try to nest really close to the, the shore. I, I saw sometimes they'll even try to like nest on like um uh where they can pretty much just like pop out right out of the water to get onto their nest and and, and you know plop right back into the water um you know almost like a, a seal coming up through an ice hole um but uh they will also nest on islands if they can you know an island is ideal for a loon because you're safe from those mammalian predators that might try to come and sneak up on you uh, they usually place their nests among areas of thick vegetation, and their nest is nothing fancy. They just make a mound out of dead plant material like sedges and marsh grass and just kind of sit on it to, to, you know, flatten and make an indent. Um, since they do nest, you know, close to the water and on islands, fluctuations in water level can be very devastating um, and, and swamp their nests. But also uh, water levels falling too much um, can be really dangerous for them too because then their nest is too far from the water and they won't be able to escape from predators. Pairs perform uh, courtship rituals to, you know, to get in the mood. Um, these rituals uh, include swimming in circles and diving together, sort of like uh, synchronized swimming. <laughs> um, if the courtship ritual gets the female in the mood, she will go ashore and await the male. Interestingly, um, I saw that the male seems to be reluctant to get out of the water to mate with the female. This is totally different from most bird reproduction I've read about. You know, the male's like always ready to go and, and jump into bed. Um, but uh, from what I read, like, uh, you know, there's a, a good amount of, you know, it looks like the female's ready to mate. She goes up on land because, you know, they mate on land. And uh, the male's like in the water like, mm, no, nah, I don't want to go up there. <laughs> 
Um, of course, you know, I, I can't help but anthropomorphize, you know, maybe, you know, the loons just feel so awkward on land that, you know, the, the male is, you know, kind of like a guy who lacks confidence, uh, uh, self-conscious about his body or something, doesn't want to take his shirt off. So he, he doesn't want to get out of the water and, and, you know, show how awkward he is to the female. Um, but, uh, you know, when, when they do, you know, do the deed, um, their sex is just pretty typical of, uh, of birds. Uh, the male will just mount the female and finish in about 20 seconds. Um, they, they don't mate, uh, you know, a lot, like a lot of songbirds, you know, they'll go at it like freaking 20 times a day, you know, when it's breeding season. Um, but it appears that, you know, loons, um, you know, they'll usually just do it once in a day when, when they do mate. Um, they very rarely will have sex twice in a day. Uh, the female will lay oval eggs that are brown with black spots. Um, almost every source I read stated they laid a maximum of two eggs, like one to two eggs is what I saw pretty routinely. But John James Audubon seems pretty adamant that they usually lay three eggs. Um, and he even says like a snarky comment, like anyone who says they lay two obviously has not examined a nest themselves. <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe they do lay three eggs, um, as we'll talk about, like, you know, uh, the incubation phase is, is the part where most nest, nest failure happens, um, uh, probably from like predation, um, or, or nest abandonment. Um, so maybe they do lay three and it's just pretty routine that at least one egg gets taken. Um, if their nest does fail, they will try to re-nest again one to two weeks later. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the male and female both share incubation duties, um, and the eggs hatch after about a month. The cool thing about the little, uh, you know, what do you call a baby loon? I was like, you call a duckling, a duck, a duckling, a goose, a gosling, a, a, a losling, a luckling. <laughs> I don't know what you call a baby loon, but anyway, the, the little baby loon chicks, um, they're able to swim pretty much immediately after hatching. Um, and they'll usually leave the nest within, uh, just one to two days. Cause you know, the water is safer than the land for, for these birds. So, um, uh, they're not the strongest swimmers when they first, you know, get onto the water. Um, so they'll usually kind of stay in like a protected bay with their family. Um, or they'll sometimes even ride on their parents' backs. Um, and this results in some super cute, uh, pictures that people have taken where, you know, the, the two little luckly lucklings, loon, loon babies <laughs> will be, uh, riding on mom and dad's back. Already at a week old, they're able to dive and swim underwater and they're also able to start catching their first fish. Um, so that's really quick, a week, they can, they can start catching their own fish. Um, by day 12, they start to lose all their downy puffball, you know, cute uh, feathers and, and develop uh, more adult plumage. At eight weeks old, they are able to almost entirely forage for themselves. At around 50 days, they start making their first practice flights, but they don't fully develop their adult plumage until about day 65. So, like I said, most nest failure um, happens, you know, during the incubation phase. Um, also, you know, you know, there can be failures, uh, you know, the chicks too. Um, I'll talk about what, what eats loons in a little bit. But um, uh, the thing about adult loons is they will abandon their young if feeding conditions become poor. Um, they will not risk starving themselves in order to raise their young or continue to, to incubate the eggs. It, you know, this seems pretty harsh, um, but uh, I think I've talked about this with some other birds that live for a long time. You know, loons live for uh, around 30 years. So um, just like mathematically, it doesn't make much sense for them to risk it all on, you know, one year's chicks when they have many breeding years ahead of them. So if things aren't going well, they're not catching enough fish to, you know, support themselves and support the chicks, they, they will abandon the chicks and, and, you know, and leave. And they're like, all right, I guess I'll just uh, try again next year. Um, once the main, you know, work of breeding is done in, in later summer, they become much less aggressive and they form what's termed social gatherings. Uh, basically, this is a group of uh, four to up to 15 loons that will form a floating group called a raft. Um, the functions of these is, is unknown um, because the loons, like, they're not doing this for like group feeding. Um, they're just like sort of hanging out. Um, and there's a few theories about why they do this. One theory is that the loons are getting to know each other. Um, remember, loons return to the same lakes to breed year after year, so these social gatherings may be sort of like a, a meet and greet where they can meet potential mates for the next year and also size up the competition of the neighbors that they'll can be competing with for uh, breeding territory.
Also, it takes seven years for loons to become sexually mature, but they begin returning to the lakes uh, they plan to eventually breed at um, around age three. So this means there's like a four-year gap where they're just sort of, you know, single loons turning up on these lakes. They, you know, they're not seven yet, so they can't breed. So, you know, what are they doing? So they're kind of like, you know, learning the ropes on how to breed. Um, so, uh, you know, this theory states that, you know, these young single loons are kind of like, I don't know, talking shop with the parents about, uh, you know, sizing up about, you know, what's a successful breeding territory and, and you know, what a successful mate looks like and, and those kinds of things. Another theory proposes that these gatherings are a chance for uh, loons to scout out potential breeding territory. Um, a little over 50% of the loons that participate in these rafts are either non-breeding um, uh, or, uh, you know, they're like these floater ones that don't have, uh, didn't have an established territory. So they may be using these gatherings as a chance to reconnoiter the landscape um, before they return the following spring and start competing for a spot to breed. Um, and also it may just be a chance to learn like some social skills, um, that will be vital during the upcoming migration. The average loon produces only eight to 10 young during its lifetime. I mean, it's an incredibly high mortality rate. So, you know, they live for like 30 years, they start breeding at age seven. So that's 23 years. They usually, you know, lay two eggs, you know, hatch one to two of them. So, so that means that only like half to a third of all the eggs they lay are, you know, actually going to make it. Um, th that's a really high mortality rate, especially for, you know, a, a water bird, a bird that's that big. Um, but uh, this also means that it takes a long time for populations to recover. So if loon populations take a hit, you know, it, it's going to take a while for them to bounce back, which I'll touch upon in a second. Um, by their mid-20s, also, loons' reproductive success begins to decline. So really, they only have, you know, between, like, age 7 and, and their mid-20s to, uh, you know, be their peak, like, uh, breeding years. Um, the, the young loons, um, so like I said, you know, they uh, will migrate that fall and they'll go to their wintering grounds on the coast of the U.S., either Pacific or Atlantic, uh, depending on, uh, you know, where their, their breeding lake was, um, whether on like the near the western or the eastern part uh, of the continental uh, America. Usually their first two years, they'll just stay on those overwintering grounds um, and then they won't uh, migrate back until they're about three or four years of age. Um, and uh, when they migrate back, they usually stay pretty close to home. They'll try to return to the lake that they were born and raised on to breed. But, you know, if they're unable to secure a spot there, then they'll look for another lake in about a 20-kilometer radius. Um, as far as their populations, common loons appear to be doing okay. There were some major declines in the mid-20th century, uh, but then their populations recovered. They're currently estimated about 1.2 million common loons. Uh, however, in certain areas, their populations are decreasing, uh, especially at the southern extreme of their breeding range. So uh, one of these areas is, you know, New England. Um, that's at the southern extreme. Um, and studies suggest there's been a 50% decrease in loon population in New England since 1970. There's only about 5,000 um, common loons uh, breeding left in uh, New England. And, uh, you know, like I said, it, it, it takes a bit for their populations to recover. They uh, need to produce an estimated 0.5 chicks per pair per year in order to maintain the uh, population level. So basically, each pair needs to be successful raising a chick um, at least every other year. Loons do appear to be meeting this goal. Um, I read a study from Nova Scotia from 1991 uh, to 2000. It was conducted, um, and it found an average of 0.75 chicks per pair per year. So even, even beating the goal a little bit. Oh, I hear some white-breasted nuthatches. But uh, there is a lot of rightful concern that, you know, pollution, human development, and climate change could cause a turning point um, that loons cannot recover from. So, you know, historically, habitat destruction and human hunting um, was a major cause of, uh, you know, human-induced um, loon population declines. Loons were hunted by Native Americans. Um, their skins um, apparently were, were heavily prized for uh, pouches uh, because, you know, they were, they were waterproof. And then uh, European settlers, uh, um, they hunted um, loons for sport, feathers, and meat. Um, John James Audubon, though, says that they tasted not too good. He said uh, they were tough, rank, and dark-colored. Um, but he did note that the people of Boston seemed to enjoy eating them. Um, apparently also the people of 
Carteret County, North Carolina, used to enjoy eating loons too, and even had a tradition of turning the leg bones into fishing lures. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918 didn't stop them, um, and it took a raid by officials in 1950, uh, which led to the arrest of 100 hunters uh, to stop that tradition of uh, eating loons and making fishing lures out their leg bones. There actually used to be bounties on loons in several states uh, because they were seen as competition for fish, um, both for fisheries and for sport anglers. Um, we, uh, we talked about a similar thing with bald eagles where they used to be killed too because they were like, oh, they're eating my fish. Don't eat my fish. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> uh, so human development on lake shores, um, such as the building of homes, docks, and uh, retaining walls um, can severely disrupt common loon breeding. Um, one study done in Wisconsin found loons would not nest on lakes where human development exceeded 25 buildings per kilometer. Um, also, human development has been shown to reduce pear density and chick production. Uh, when loons nest within 150 meters of a human, uh, human development, you know, a house, a dock, something like that, uh, their nest success rate drops from 75% to 45% um, from one study I read from 1983. Um, boats can also, uh, you know, be detrimental for common loons, both from directly colliding into them, um, or just scaring them, which, um, causes decreased feeding success and, uh, may cause them to abandon their nests. Acidification of lakes has a lot of bad effects that, you know, reduces biodiversity and abundance of fish and crustaceans that, you know, loons rely on to eat. Um, a study in Ontario found uh, severe declines in breeding success once pH gets below 5.8 and total failure of breeding below a pH of 4.5. You know, that, that, that's a pretty acidic lake because um, to put that in context, the average chlorinated swimming pool has a pH around 7.2 to 7.8. Um, acidification also increases the uh, bioavailability of mercury. Uh, meaning that mercury in the environment is more easily absorbed uh, from the digestive system of animals. If you've listened to any of my aquatic bird episodes, you know, you know, mercury is a big problem in the watersheds of America. Most of the mercury pollution comes from coal-fired power plants that put mercury into the atmosphere where it, you know, later settles down to the surface. Uh, mercury is a known neurotoxin and it can result in impairment in bird survival and breeding success. Um, and there's been studies in, in various species that support this. Mothers with mercury poisoning will pass it on to their eggs. Uh, a study I found conducted across Canada found 55% of eggs contained mercury levels high enough to cause reproductive problems, and 7% contained mercury levels high enough to just be directly toxic to the birds. Uh, acidity of lakes also increases as you move um, west to east across the northern U.S. and Canada, and subsequently the breeding success of loons um, decreases as you move um, west to east. Uh, you know, this makes sense. You know, the east was, uh, you know, populated sooner, industrialized sooner and everything, so, you know, there's uh, been more pollution. Um, oil spills have affected common loons. Um, in 1996, there was an oil spill off the coast of Rhode Island that killed an estimated 400 common loons. And, uh, you know, that, um, uh, what was it, the Deep Horizon, that, that one that happened, you know, from BP in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, common loons do winter in the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, Deepwater Horizon, that was it. Um, uh, that one affected common loons also. Uh, I also found a really weird event where a red tide algae bloom killed uh, many coastal birds, uh, including common loons, uh, with a mechanism similar to oil spills. As you probably know, the reason why oil spills are so devastating for birds is because the oil clings to their feathers and causes them to lose the ability to fly, lose buoyancy, and also lose their waterproofing and ability to thermoregulate. I found an account about a few red tide events in California and Oregon that resulted in the deaths of many seabirds who became covered in sea foam that acted similar to oil. Common loons were among the birds found dead from these events. It turns out the foam was composed of amino acids produced by the dinoflagellate Akashiwo sanguina. Um, I didn't see if this red tide bloom was directly linked to humans in any way, uh, you know, such as like fertilizer runoff. Um, but something I did find, um, I, I do have a theory for why this happened. Um, so I was reading about this plankton, you know, the Akashiwo sanguini. Um, it appears that they are the major food source for larval anchovies. Um, <laughs> That white-breasted nuthatch is, like, right above me. 
Um, so anyway, so larval anchovies, they selectively will eat that akashiwo and ignore other types of dinoflagellates. Um, the anchovies in the Pacific coast, they're having major population troubles and collapses of their populations. Uh, this is, you know, due to a variety of factors like overfishing and climate change. So anyway, this is pure conjecture, but I think that the collapse of the anchovy population, that means less larval anchovies, they're not eating the akashiwo, and that led to the red tide event that killed these common loons. <laughs> Who done it? So, um... Fishing also is a, you know, uh, can be a big killer of common loons. They can become tangled in fishing lines. Um, and then uh, also um, lead is a big problem too. Lead coming from fishing weights and like the jig heads that are used for lures too. So I read a study that close to 50% of loon corpses um, recovered um, in, in, in a study area were dead um, from suspected lead poisoning. Um, they usually seem to ingest lead while eating fish that have either swallowed a lead rig or like the fishing line became broken off. Um, and so the lead weights were still attached when the loon ate it. Um, they may also gobble up lead weights that they find on lake bottoms, thinking that they're stones. Um, loons will swallow stones um, to help grind up the food in their stomachs. Um, and usually uh, they're found to have about 10 pea-sized stones um, in their stomachs at, at any time. And, and, you know, I've talked about, like, lead bullets a lot on the show. You know, you know lead's, a, lead's a major problem for, for wildlife, for birds in the U.S. Um, I did see in the United Kingdom, apparently they had a similar problem with, with lead fishing weights and mute swans that were getting a lot of lead poisoning. Uh, and so their response, they banned lead fishing weights. Um, and what do you know? Um, it reduced the amount of lead poisoning in mute swans. So, you know, maybe the U.S. needs to do something similar to this. You know, no more lead fishing weights and no more lead bullets. Dams uh, can be uh, not good for for loons. You might think, you know, a dam it, it makes a lake. Um, you know, that's that's good for loons. Um, but you know, uh, dams, lakes with dams have a lot of fluctuations in their in their water level, um, and so you know that can be pretty um, devastating. Like I said, you know, if the water raises up too much, then it'll drown the nest. If it drops too low, then the loon is too far away from water to escape from predators or to feed. Um, so. Uh, loons do get helped out in, in some areas. Conservationists will make floating rafts um, that rise and fall with the water level, um, and it provides like a floating island for loons to nest on. So um, some non-human uh, causes of mortality, um, respiratory aspergillus, which is a uh, fungus, can be pretty deadly for them. And also botulism. There's been a, a high amount of botulism poisoning uh, for common loons also. Um, that aspergillus is one of the leading causes of death of immature loons, especially, um, um, according to a study I found that looked at carcasses in New England. Blood-sucking flies are also a big problem for loons, um, especially when they're incubating their eggs. Um, the, the flies will bite both the chicks and the parents, um, and they can cause nest failure. You know, if, if a loon's getting bit too much on its nest, it'll just abandon the eggs. Um, climate change may be making these black flies worse. Uh, more precipitation means more black flies because they breed in small fishless seasonal streams. There's over 250 species of black flies. Um, usually black flies are generalists, you know, they'll bite anything with blood that they can suck. But with loons, um, almost exclusively one species of black fly called Simulion annulus uh, will feed on the common loons. This black fly species um, feeds on other birds too, but for some reason it's the only one that's usually found on common loons. Uh, I don't know why other fly species don't attack um, common loons, but um, from experiments that use common loon decoys and carcasses, there appears to be some sort of chemical in the feathers of common loons that attracts this specific species, the, the simaloon annulus, to them. Um, bald eagles will prey on common loon eggs, the chicks, and, and even adults, too. Um, other nest predators are mammals such as raccoons and minks, um, and then the classic egg-stealing birds, too, you know, gulls, crows, ravens. Um, those cute little swimming chicks, um, they're susceptible to predators like snapping turtles and pike, which will we'll try to snap them up from below. But uh, the highest mortality of loons does come during uh, migration and also winter. You know, this is a time of, uh, you know, increased uh, body stress. Um, so starvation, predation, collisions, winter storms, um, you know, these can all kill common loons. 
Um, sometimes these winter die-offs occur in mass um, with hundreds or even thousands of loons dying in the same wintering grounds. When they die, they have a tendency to go to shore um, to die. Um, so there's some very distressing accounts where people will like go down to the beach and then just find it littered with loon corpses. Double-crested cormorants are also a species that competes with loons. Um, you know, they compete for fish. They also compete for breeding sites. And uh, as you heard in my bald eagle episode, you know, double-crested cormorant populations are kind of exploding in a lot of areas, which, you know, worries um, uh, conservationists because they're, they're out-competing some, some other bird species. Um, but this is where bald eagles, you know, I know bald eagles eat common loons, but they also eat double-crested cormorants, and uh, they do help keep their populations in check. You know, like I said, uh, most of the breeding loon population is up in Canada. 95% of the breeding population is in Canada. So they're, they're very beloved um, up in Canada. And actually, loons even feature on the Canadian dollar coin. Uh, so these coins are affectionately called loonies. Um, and then their $2 coin, to kind of go along with this theme, are called toonies. All right, y'all, let's wrap up with the evolution. Um, the evolution of these birds is actually pretty cool. Um, so let's let's talk about that, and then we'll end the show. Um, this one ran a little longer than I expected, but like I said, this is a, a well-researched bird, a well-beloved bird, so there was a lot of stuff out there about it. So loons belong to the order Gaviformes. Um, conveniently, this is named after them. You know, their genus is Gavia, um, and that's because they're the only members of this order. There's been a lot of taxonomy changes for loons over the years as genetic testing has shown some similarities between loons and other birds. Um, we're all just convergent evolution. Uh, you know, they used to be uh, classified with like cormorants and, and grebes and stuff. Uh, so for example, um, you know, remember when I talked about that paddling motion that loons do underwater where they sort of use their legs like a boat propeller? Um, it turns out grebes do the same thing. Um, so, you know, they were thought for a while to be closely related, um, but genetic studies have showed otherwise. Yeah, so that, you know, boat propeller mechanism, it, it evolved independently in, in loons and grebes. It's convergent evolution. Um, there has been a lot of controversy about the origins of loons, um, and that controversy centers around a few fossils. Um, the first is a Cretaceous-era fossil called Neogaeornis wetzeli that was discovered in Chile. While this fossil is just a leg bone, it's obvious that the uh, bird who had it dove underwater and, uh, and used a similar uh, propeller kind of mechanism to loons. The other fossils come from Antarctica on Vega Island and belong to a genus called Polarornis. These also date back from the Cretaceous and contain a much more robust assortment of bones that strongly suggest that this bird used foot-propelled diving exactly like modern loons and grebes. If these fossils do represent ancestral loons, and, and most recent research suggests that they do, um, then this would make loons one of the oldest orders of, of all birds, um, only rivaled by Anseriformes, uh, which contains waterfowl like ducks, and Galliformes that contains ground-dwelling birds like chickens. Uh, the reason why these fossils were so controversial, though, is because they were found in the southern hemisphere, and all five of today's loon species reside solely within the northern hemisphere. Sounds like a tohi. However, there is a fossil called Columbicolis, which was discovered in Ukraine and dates from the Eocene about 38 to 47 million years ago. Um, this fossil is also a leg bone, but it's undoubtedly of an ancient loon species. And so it kind of helps connect the dots um, from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere. Uh, so, you know, the current consensus is that loons are an ancient order of birds that date back to the Cretaceous. Um, you know, remember, this is a Cretaceous. This is when dinosaurs are still roaming the earth. Um, and so this means that they originated in the Cretaceous and they originated on uh, the southern hemisphere, on the supercontinent of Gondwana. Um, Antarctica was part of Gondwana. It hadn't yet drifted down, you know, to its polar location. It was lush with bird life at this time. Uh, you know, check out my elephant bird episode. I talk about this. Um, but uh, sometime in the Eocene, um, loons began going extinct in the southern hemisphere. And they also colonized the northern hemisphere around this time, too. 
Interestingly, it's theorized that penguins, which uh, kind of have, you know, a similar ecological niche to loons, you know, they dive and they catch fish. Um, they Penguins may have outcompeted loons um, in the southern hemisphere, which drove them uh, to extinction and, and drove them to, you know, colonize the northern hemisphere. Um, conveniently, in the northern hemisphere, a group of aquatic diving birds called Hesper ornithiforms, um, which basically looked like bow-legged cormorants. Um, this group had recently gone extinct, um, and so that left the you know diving bird ecological niche open for loons to exploit when they arrived in the northern hemisphere. Uh, another ancient loon fossil that shows the evolutionary changes within the order is from Essex, uh, UK. Um, it dates from the early Eocene, about uh, 47 to 56 million years ago. This loon had wider mandibles um, compared to the sharp bill of modern loons. Um, and it hints that the early ancestor was not adapted to uh, a mostly fish diet. It was a, a little bit more omnivorous, you know, probably ate a lot of vegetation too. Its legs are also not as far back um, on its body as modern loons. Um, and so it didn't have, you know, all the special adaptations for diving and swimming deep underwater that modern loons does. So um, this seems to suggest that as loons became more specialized for, you know, strictly, you know, pursuing fish diets, um, they also became more adapted for underwater diving and swimming fast to be able to pursue those fish. And let me just touch again on, you know, the evolutionary adaptations for swimming and diving that loons have. Um, they have those posterior feet. They have a heavy body, which helps them to dive underwater. Um, they have small wings that don't produce much drag resistance underwater. Um, and then also they have compact and heavy bones, um, you know, which helps them to, to sink when, they, when they're diving. Uh, their feathers also are compact so they don't hold in much air. And this helps reduce buoyancy so that they don't just, you know, float right up to the surface. The Gavia genus first appears in the Miocene and dates from about 24 million years ago. There's four other fossil records of ancient Gavia species, um, you know, that are now extinct. Um, they are all smaller bodied than modern day loon species, showing that larger body size was a more recent development. There are five living loon species right now. Um, like I said, all are in the Northern Hemisphere. All inhabit the same kind of biome, tundra lakes. Rarely they uh, breed in rivers. And, you know, they breed in these freshwater areas and then migrate to more coastal areas during the non-breeding season. The red-throated loon appears to be the most basal member of modern loons. It's both the smallest modern loon and has a more drab brown-gray breeding plumage um, compared to the other uh, loon species that have that striking black and white breeding plumage. Both this small size and drab breeding plumage are thought to be ancestral characteristics of loons. Molecular clock estimates suggest that red-throated loons diverged from other loon species way back in the Miocene, at least 8 million years ago. The common loon's closest relative is the yellow-billed loon. Um, both of these loons are the largest um, living loon species, um, with the yellow-billed loon being slightly larger than the common loon. The yellow-billed loon breeds in Alaska, western Canada, and Siberia. It's thought that these two loon species differentiated during the glaciation events of the Pleistocene about two to three million years ago. Um, you know, basically during those glaciation events, the yellow-billed loon ancestors were restricted to the Bering uh, Sea, and then they became Arctic specialists and split off from, uh, you know, their common ancestor with the common loon. Uh, we know the common loon is at least two million years old as a species because that's when it starts popping up on the fossil record. The evolutionary history of loons is, is fascinating. Um, I don't think I've ever covered a bird, you know, that, that you can go back to the Cretaceous and, and basically instantly recognize. Um, loons have survived the extinction events uh, that killed the dinosaurs, the breakup of the continents, competition with penguins, um, and multiple glaciation events. So, I mean, they've survived all that. Let's hope that they can survive mankind also. All right, guys. Well, that's the show. You know, write reviews, tell people about the show. Let me know if you want free stickers. And as always, stay dirty, fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. The Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky Pistone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. 
The outro music you're listening to right now is a song New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. The Dirty Bird Podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranoski. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening. Coming back. Tim's on the ground in the concrete jungle. I might get into 